Welcome to Open Mic. We have an exclusive interview for you today with Ray Gray and his wife, Barbara. He spent 48 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He's been out for one week, and he is giving his first interview on Open Mic. Stay tuned. Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Well, I'm really, really excited to meet you both, Barbara Gray and Ray Gray. Thank you. Welcome to Open Mic. I'm overwhelmed. I've been reading about you for the last several months. Um, tell me, Ray, what the first week out of prison after 48 years was like for you? Uh, it was quite interesting. It was adventurous. Um, I would have to say it was almost unbelievable. You know, uh, I was trying to soak in everything. Uh, it felt different to be in a car without chains on me. Um, that was something to get used to. Um, going in the store, it was overwhelming, uh, let me put it that way. Uh, the sights and the scenes and the people. But it was wonderful. I mean, you've been in prison since 1973. I was six years old at the time. 48 years have passed. I mean, the world has changed is yes. an understatement. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what were some of the things that you saw for the first time that you just couldn't believe? Well, everybody had a phone. Everybody was walking down the street, and no one was actually like they were talking to each other. <laughs> right. Unless they were talking on the phone. Um, the technical things were so much different. Um, I went into a dollar store, and that was amazing because I couldn't believe those things were for a dollar, and there was so much stuff. And you're not going to just spend a dollar when you go in there, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it was to be dollar store. Uh, yeah, where's I all the inflation? Felt that people were. I felt a little hesitant, let me put it that way. You felt hesitant? Uh, yes, a little. Bill had told me to go in a store and wait on it. He was doing something in his trunk, and I felt a little self-conscious that I didn't want to go in a store and they thought I was trying to steal something. Or mm. I had a cart, and I didn't know. I had to bring the cart back. I just like I just leave it, so I brought the cart back. I don't want them thinking I was trying to steal a cart out the store, which seems ridiculous, but it's just that uh, having been in prison so long, there were some things I had to try to shake off. You know, we went to a restaurant, and I noticed as we was leaving, there was a knife on the table, I guess, to cut the food with, and I immediately thought of. Uh, 
somebody may say something to me about this knife. I didn't put the knife there. It was already there. And that was like my first day out. So it was things I realized that I had to adjust to. Wow. You know, trying not to be institutionalized, but I realized that there were some things that carryovers from the incarceration. Sure. I, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine the, the, the post-traumatic stress and the, the, the trauma and, and the anxiety that you're going through dealing with all of these new things and wondering if people are watching you and not having chains on you when you get into a car. I mean, that's got to be so freeing, yet at the same time, a little bit scary. Yes, yes, it was. It was because sitting in the car, I almost felt like the chains were on me and my movement of my legs to be able to stretch out and I remember one time I, um, I don't know if it was a mistake or not, they put handcuff cuffs on my ankles. And at the time, I didn't know that there was a difference. I thought handcuffs were handcuffs, but maybe they thought the same way. And it was very difficult to walk um, because they're not designed for that. Um, there are things that I still think about the prison, you know, at, at things are so regimented and so pinpoint to at nine o'clock is this, at two after nine is that, you know, so I find myself sometimes still looking at the clock. Um, they started kind of restricting some things like we couldn't go to the bathroom at, at what they call comp time. And I felt that was so unfair because uh, human nature is greater than man's um, law, the law of the universe, the law of nature. And so uh, that was something I was going to attempt to challenge uh, before my release. Um, there was the issue over the telephone. The, the telephone was one of the most amazing things because it was a big issue in the prison. You know, being able to talk on the phone for 15 minutes. Um, there's always a long line for everything. Um, that takes some getting adjusted to. Uh, the food. Um, I painted a picture of a person, uh, like on an island, and he was looking at the, the city. But behind him, instead of a moon, it was a planet, planet Earth. Because it actually seems like I'm on another planet, another world. This world is nothing like the world that I left. Um, and that's been my world. Most of my life has been spent in that world. And this world is uh, quite interesting, but wonderful. I, I, I've been, your smile today and your smile and the pictures I've seen in the paper is just so warm and so beautiful. Um, you know, as I was reading and researching and getting ready for today to meet you, um, you know, we're going to get into the, the nuts and bolts of what happened to you and, and, and the, the wrongful conviction, all that. But as I'm, as I'm reading the stories and I got to meet your wife this morning, there, there's a part of this story is a love story. Oh, Actually, hundred percent for the most part, and and I find that 
almost as interesting as the other stuff that we're that we're going to get into. But I want to bring your your wife Barbara into the interview uh, before we get into the legal stuff. Um, Barbara, you met Ray in 1978. He was already incarcerated for over five years. Tell me how you guys met. Well, I had an art workshop in uh, Jackson, Dahoko, and a number of prisons. I would bring artists of one sort or another into the prison to meet the guys and women. Um, and then I would take art out and do exhibitions of prisoner art. Ray, what, what they did was they put flyers up saying uh, there's going to be a workshop and if you want to, come on down. And A lot of prisoners did, but he was... Um, well, Ray sometimes gets into his head and the rest of the world doesn't matter. And one of the prison administrative people, his name is Charlie Udis, said, do you have Ray Gray yet? He's the best in the system. And I said, no, you know, put up flyers, and I don't, I don't like to pressure people. So I wrote him a letter, and he responded, and I met him for the first time in the visiting room. Um, at, well, I think it's probably the same or worse. Um, it was very difficult to do the workshops, to meet the people. At Jackson, there, at that time, there were three separate prisons. The north side, which was sort of medium security. The south side, or trustee, that's uh, very low security. Guys are pretty nice there. And then the inside. Ray was inside in four block, one of the worst maybe in the country. Mm. And um, so I, I said, a letter said, you know, hi, how are you? Um, I'm here, and I come every Friday. You'd be welcome to join in a workshop. If you want to, it's okay, you know. Um, he did, and I won't say it was love at first sight, but we grew to care for each other very much. Mm. Wow. I mean, how many years had you been in the prison system teaching uh, art. Oh, he was among the first. Uh, so this was a relatively newer thing for you. It was at the time. I maybe started in '77 and okay. met him, and before I knew it, he was almost conducting the workshops. And I learned I certainly am not an artist. Um, <laughs> We uh, we collaborate on some things. I just, whenever I, I used to travel a lot and took a lot of pictures and sent them to him, um, which isn't very allowed now. But, well, he can tell you more about that. Well, was it love at first sight for you too? Well, this might be hard to believe, but I had a dream of a woman with a beret on and a certain outfit. And when her, I seen her for the first time, she had that outfit on. Come on. Seriously. Did she have and, a beret on? Yeah, she had a, 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 a rust-colored beret. 
and I've always been kind of partial towards berets. Maybe it's an artistic thing or whatever, Rembrandt or whatever. But she had that on. And I'm kind of uh, into spirituality and things, so that meant something to me. But I was, again, kind of hesitant to say something to her because of, in relation to that because it sounds so corny and far-fetched and, and one has to be particularly careful in situations dealing with men and women in prison because a lot of things are assumed. Um, and I never wanted to run away. But yeah, it was... I had I had an attraction that was beyond just you know a sexual attraction. I thought it was meant to be. So you and had I was so, right. So there was a seven year gap between you first met and you got married in prison in 1985. So so tell me how that how that happens. I mean, you're corresponding. You're seeing him on Fridays. Yeah, mostly other people went into the other prisons, especially. <laughs> After I got to know him, I wasn't about to miss it. Um, he, like I started to say, he pretty much conducted the workshops once he got into it. And he, he and the other artists that I brought in from outside worked very well together. Um, the prisoners respect him. Um, he's got a gentle personality. He proposed to you while he was in prison, 19... Uh, uh, what year was yeah, that? About 1984. My, um, my mother at the time was in her late 80s. No. 60s, 70s, around there. And um, she... We were just looking at it yesterday. She gave Ray her engagement ring to give to me. Wow. And when he did propose, it was more like, if I asked you, would you? And I said, well, you have That's to what you came ask. up with, Ray? <laughs> if I asked you to marry me, would you marry me? <laughs> well, yeah, I was a, a little uncertain. <laughs> I wonder why. I, I just didn't want to uh, run away, you know, and I wasn't used to that sort of thing, you know, but we had... Uh, fell in love, you know, kind of early, around 78, 79, you know, but we felt um, better that if we left Jackson and went to another prison, that it would be better, you know, because now we could abandon the program. Um, she started a new program, but... Uh, once we left Jackson and went to another prison that was a little more hospitable, I guess would the word be, um, and she said yes. You know, were you able to be together for the for the wedding? For, this thirty five years ago. Well, we were, were you able to stand next to each other and get married in yeah, prison? Yeah, yes. you were. Yes, we had, we had a little ceremony, kind of like this, uh, and I was allowed to wear a suit coat, sport coat, which is not allowed other than for that particular occasion. Um, and, uh, you know, we had family members and stuff, so uh, I would like to get married again. 
out here in a, a real marriage, a more in a more official marriage. What a great idea! So, thirty-five years, right? Yeah, thirty-six years, something. Yeah, that is fabulous. And so you, I mean, you've never been able to sleep in a house together for 35, 36 years until this week. I mean, how has this, how has this first week been as a married, uh, first time being together after 35, 36 years? I mean, it's just mind blowing. Yeah, it was for us too. Um, a lot of people have a reception right after the wedding. Ours would have to be after the consummation. <laughs> And uh, we need to decompress is a popular word for it because there are so many things that are new to him. We need to take care of that a little bit before mm -hmm. we... Uh, besides, we have a lot of people who would like to be there. So it will take us a while. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of people that... that um I want to reach back to uh, and and communicate with um, the thing. One of the things that was kind of overwhelming and still is, is that we've been at the door of freedom before, you know, and just was able to peep in and to have it closed, and so that was very heartbreaking. Um, particularly like a public hearing, that, that sort of thing. Um, the problem with that is that you have to admit your guilt, whether you're guilty or not, you know, and the Department of Correction doesn't recognize that there are such things as wrongful convictions, that people are in prison for crimes they didn't do, even to the extent of some people being executed, you know, and... Uh, so much so that there have been people executed and they still don't want to acknowledge it. So it's that human factor of uh, not wanting to say that you've done something so egregious as to someone been in prison all these years so you want to continue to say uh, that they did it. So that was, a, that was a problem, to have a public hearing. And there were talk efforts to try to get another one. And... I, I don't think I would want to would want to attend another public hearing, and so even with with this situation, with uh, they made some adjustments to get me out. Uh, I don't want to say it's making a deal with the devil or nothing, but it was a, a situation where I couldn't just say I did something I didn't do. Right, and we're going to get into that because that is a big part of this story. Um, just to set the stage, the the original crime of Reuben Bryant uh, was uh, February 6, 1973. Three short months later, May 11, 73, you were sentenced to life without parole um, for the murder. You had a bench trial in front of a, a newer judge um, because your lawyer uh, didn't, didn't advise you to have a jury trial. Um, and... Let's let's start there. Um, you've maintained your innocence for all of these years. Um, did you did you know Reuben Bryant before the murder? Slightly, slightly. 
I'm not, not well, but yeah, I had met him. In what context? Um, through a girl that I was dating, you know, and that was another element that uh, I felt would have pointed to my guilt if I had done it was that he would have said, you know, Ray, what are you doing? Or Bob, what are you doing? Um, I would have not had to sneak in the house. I could have just walked in. I know him enough to, you know, go there and, and be let in. Um, so, yeah, I, I know him slightly. We wasn't, you know, good friends or nothing, but I respected him. Um, and where were you when the first time you heard that he was murdered? At home. And you had... According to what I've read, you had at least four people with you who testified that you were home yeah, at the time of the murder. Exactly. These are exactly. family members, friends? Family members and friends. Okay, they all did testify in your trial? Yes. And um, who was your defense attorney back then? Who handled the trial for you? Robert Monash. And was this a court-appointed attorney? No, he was a hired attorney. You hired him. This was my father hired him. He was the, this was the first... I think it was my first murder trial he ever had, our first criminal uh, trial he had ever had. His father, was supposed to hire his father, but for some reason his father didn't uh, take the case. He, uh, his son took it, and um, it was just inexperienced. It was a three-day trial is what I read? Yes. And the judge was a newer judge too, I think. Judge yeah, Ravitz? Judge Ravitz, yeah. Um, I don't know how many years he was on the bench. I don't know how many murder trials he had before that. Um, but I heard that he was a, a new, recently elected judge. Yeah, and he was somewhat of a radical. He had a repetition, him and Ken Cockrell. Uh, and there had been an incident, the new Bethel incident, dealing with uh, police and uh, some activist groups. And so... My lawyer felt that he would be more open-minded, since he was and more liberal, in knowing that there were police questionable conduct by the police back then. Um, one of the witnesses didn't want to testify, and it fled the city and lived went down to Atlanta, and so the lawyer felt that if the witnesses didn't want to testify and because of the situation with the police department then had an incident with the 10th precinct that uh, a best trial would be advisable. And you remember him talking to you about this and you you agreed uh, as a 21-year-old person yeah, not knowing yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was naive. You, you agreed to I, it. I agreed to it, yes. And, um, and there was one eyewitness... Um, who testified that you were part of the robbery that turned into a murder. Um, is that true? Yeah. Uh, and, but yeah, even initially, she couldn't pick me out of a, the photo lineup. Marie Hardy? Yes. She could not pick you out. She was 16 at the time, couldn't pick you out of a photo lineup, but did testify at your trial. Yes. And I saw a news report that she was recently... Uh, interviewed and hasn't changed her story in in forty eight 
plus years, apparently, that she thinks that her 16-year-old mind still is accurate. She was 18 at the time, but she's been in hiding, sort of. At one time, the Conviction Integrity Unit said she was using somebody else's Social Security number. Being 18, when she said she was Ruben's uh, fiancé, now she seems to be just a little mixed up. She says, I was 16, but... It would be hard to say that that would be her fiancé if she was 16. So apparently using a drug house and having something to do with that has affected her brain. She's, she seems to be confused. Yeah. So other than her testimony, was there any other evidence to link you to this to the robbery or to the murder? No. In fact, in, uh, in getting the warrant, they listed maybe eight or nine different things that they collected. But none of the things they collected tied me in with it. One thing that they collected that they didn't mention, and I found out years later, was some fingerprints. And the fingerprints were on a jar in one of the back rooms. Um, which wasn't mine. Uh, uh, years later, we had 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 them tested, but no, there was no physical evidence. Uh, although the physical evidence was mentioned, uh, one other thing too was the individual who committed the crime had a big mustache, and that played a prominent part in identification. Uh, what they call a Fu Manchu mustache. And I had a big mustache, but so did the, 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 the killer. But what happened was when she looked at the photograph and couldn't pick me out, and said, well, let's go arrest him. So once they arrested me uh, and put me in the lineup, I was the only one with a mustache. Oh, God. And so uh, not only was I the only one with a mustache, it was a common practice back then. I don't know what the practice is now. But if you were a suspect in a, a crime, you were allowed to go around and to the sales and pick who you wanted to be in your lineup. And at the time, I was a much smaller. I was about 122 pounds. There's no way I would pick a 220-pound person because that would be too glaring. And the fact that in a lineup with a mustache, I was the only one with a mustache, and not only that, I wasn't allowed to pick out the people to be in a lineup. So a lineup was what I was really looking forward to. When I go to this lineup, I know I'm not going to be picked out because it's not me. This lineup is, I'm going home from this lineup. And an individual, well, I later found out, was Michael Bryant, who was a police cadet at the time, came to the cell and told me that, no, you're not you're going to get picked out. I guarantee it. I said, no, I'm not. I guarantee you're going to get picked out. And when I went to the to go to the lineup, before I could even get under the, the light, she picked me. And the police told her she, you know, she had, I had to at least get under the light. You know, but it was like the guy with the big red nose is coming out. You see him, that's him. 
So that so that 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 helped this big mustache that I had. So that was like you feel like it was a, a setup. Yeah, I could. I mean, the police knew that the, the that the that she said that the person had a mustache. Yeah, they, they, they and they brought out. you out with four or five other black men without mustaches. Yes, in fact, they were they were already there. You know, the lineup, the, which was unusual. Usually, it, like I said, you pick out who you want to be in your lineup, and you pretty much go together, as opposed to. They already there. I mean, who are these people? I mean, for all I know, they could have been officers or whatever. You know, and they usually have an officer there to, to sort of monitor the lineup. But that was purely uh, so suggestive that uh, this mustache, that, uh, and that she couldn't pick me out initially. Um, and at the time, I had long hair. None of them had long hair. None of them had a mustache, which was, Quite unusual. You stuck out like a sore thumb. Right. So, Ray, many people have fought for your innocence, including two men sitting here in a room with us, former TV journalist Bill Proctor and former Michigan State Police Officer and Deputy Director of the Detroit Crime Commission, Ellis Stafford. Both of the men are here. Um, I'm going to turn to uh, Bill for a second. Bill, as a TV reporter, you, you reported on this story in your official capacity um, and then you started believing his story. Can you take us through this journey and, and uh, why you believed him and why do you still believe him? Well, by, by 2006, um, I had been involved in uh, reporting several uh, actual innocence claims, wrongful convictions. And so um, I, I guess I had a bit of a reputation. So I was called to a meeting in Royal Oak where it turned out uh, four or five, uh, maybe six individuals had come down from Canada in an organization, organization called AIDWIC. Um, they are now Innocence Canada, uh, but AIDWIC was the organization that uh, Hurricane Carter uh, huh. was instrumental in starting uh, in Toronto. They had been working on Ray's case for uh, quite some time, and they had reports and uh, had investigators in the street, and they had done some interviews, and so they were quite convinced. They were telling me, okay, well, he's been in for whatever number of years, over 10, and I'm saying, well, you know, the cases that I've worked on are relatively short. I don't think I can help you. That's how it started, with me essentially pushing back, saying, you know, I'm not your guy. Um, But I was lucky enough, within a relatively short period of time, to get more information and to meet Ray. Well, after meeting Ray... Um, I was in. So from that time, um, I, as a reporter, found individuals who were a part of the scenario. I found uh, Barbara Jean Hill, the woman who was a witness and who um, turned out to be suspected of being a co-conspirator in the robbery. I met, talked to, and chased down on a number of occasions Charlie Matthews, the man who actually did this crime, the man who uh, Barbara as identified by affidavit as being the person who shot Reuben Bryant to death. Um, I never met Tyrone Pugh because he died in a, a gun battle with um, uh, officers in Washington County in the mid-70s. So by the time it's over, um, I'm convinced because of what Charlie told me. Charlie wanted to blame it on his brother, who was conveniently dead, but he gave very specific detail that the girl and Tyrone... And his brother, whose name was Larry, but he was deceased at the time, uh, planned the whole thing at 
the family's dining room table in the Matthews home. And then they went and did this robbery. Now, the robbery wasn't supposed to turn into a homicide, but they most certainly had planned the robbery because everybody at the table had a drug problem. So that's what that was about. So I'm, I'm probably one of the few people, civilians, to actually be face-to-face with Charlie Matthews. But you, you need only look at his record. This was an individual who spent most of his life in and out of prison because the drug problem sent him to do bad things like theft and robbery and store heists and all kinds of things that he did. So he was in and out of prison a lot. And when he was out of prison, he was in rehab. Um, and uh, along with the rehab, he was doing, uh, I guess, part-time um, handyman work. Bill, let me, let me stop you for a quick second. In 1980, Charlie Matthews signed an affidavit admitting to being at the scene, admitting to being part of it, and then he pled the fifth, and he he tried to get in front of we tried to get him in front of a judge. It sounds like, and he pled the fifth. So as early as 1980, he was on. He signed an affidavit trying to cooperate a bit to help Ray. I mean, that's 40 plus years ago. And there were, um, I guess, a couple of months or years before he actually was in court under oath and asked some questions. But he had a lawyer from Sado. Uh, and so with that, um, I guess he, he felt empowered, maybe even counseled, to not incriminate himself. And that's what he said. He said, yes, Your Honor, essentially, I, I know what happened here, but no, I'm not talking any further. And that essentially was the end of it. But that was the most that law enforcement and the system attempted with Charlie Matthews. <laughs> and how do you get up out of a chair saying that you know about a crime? You walk out of there, or maybe you get taken back to custody. I'm not sure where he was at that time. But the real bottom line was that this was a man who had knowledge. He was about the same size and stature as, as the person who was convicted. And what infuriates me about this entire process You've got two people identified by victims and witnesses in that apartment where Reuben Bryant was shot. One of them was over six feet tall. The other one was about five seven, five eight. Guess what? Only one man gets convicted of this. There was never any really real um, police work to go out and arrest the taller of the two. He who was easily identifiable. No, this is that this is the travesty of justice on so many levels. It continues to sicken me to know. That, that government, with all this authority, power, money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, continues to do this to people even to this day. But in 1973, this was horrific. You know, you and I, have, you've, you've been on the podcast several times, Bill. You and I have had lots of uh, conversations with the Innocence Clinic uh, up in Ann Arbor and, and, and others. And these type of scenarios keep coming up. I mean, this one is, I think you've taught me that the wrongful identifications are in the top, is number one or number two when it comes to wrongful convictions. It is number and one. Number it's one. number one. And, and I mean, this is just, this is textbook, what they did to, to Ray. And it's, it is disgusting and it is maddening and sad and saddening. Um, let's, let's bring in Ella Stafford. Um, you and I are meeting today for the first time, sir. Thank you for being here. Tell me how you got involved in Ray's case and, um, you know, when this all started for you. Well, in 1973, I was eight, uh, so I didn't know Ray. But uh, Bill came to see uh, see me and a, 
a retired supervisory special agent from the FBI, one of my partners, Ron Reddy, and he uh, asked us as a favor to take a look at this case. At that time, he gave me a case file, which I, I prayed this, is, this cannot be an investigation. This, this here wouldn't even get you a warrant. I mean, the stuff that he gave me, there was no physical evidence, uh, one witness only. No, this can't be true. But we took a chance because it was Bill that asked us to do it. And when we called the warden, this is what really got me, Mike. The warden allowed two retired investigators to come see a man in prison. We weren't law enforcement anymore. We were retired. Why did you allow us to do it? Well, I found out later when I got there, they didn't believe Ray did it. Mm. They believed he was innocent. So we do what we always do. If I've interviewed thousands of witnesses, suspects, and victims as, as my, uh, in my career with the state police, so there are some things that we use. Uh, I've attended Scan School, which is scientific content and analysis developed by the Mossad. Uh, Read Interview uh, School of uh, Interview and Investigation. There are certain questions that we ask, and you may be familiar with some of them, but I'm not going to reveal them here. <laughs> uh, but we interviewed Ray for three and a half hours. And those techniques which we use to detect deception, we didn't see any. Uh, me and Ron came out of that thing three and a half hours later saying, this guy didn't do it. This man is innocent. Not only is my gut telling me that, my training and experience is telling me he's innocent. So the next thing we did was uh, got a, po a polygrapher who used to, uh, used to work with, with the state police. Uh, we paid for the polygraph. Uh, he came, came in, they allowed him to come into prison, give the polygraph, because they believed the same thing we did. And uh, Chris Lanford, who did the polygraph, walked out and said, Ellis, this man passed. He didn't Jeez. do this. What year was this? This About was 2012. About 2012, yeah. Uh, almost 10 years ago. And I, I was blown away. I'm like, wow. I, but what could I do? I didn't, I didn't know what to do. Uh, but one, two years later, then, then uh, Bill had some folks working, working with me and him, and uh, Governor Whitmer got in the office. Over the years, I got to know people. Uh, I got to know a few people, uh, one of which uh, Prosecutor Worthy. Um, I know her very well. I, I regard her as a friend. I know a lot of people up in Governor Whitmer's um, administrative and her executive staff. So I started pulling in some personal favors uh, and I wrote her a letter. She wrote somebody in the office, wrote me back, <laughs> said, you need to do this, this and this. Shared it with Bill and his team. And that was done and had already been done. And there was some more communication with folks in our office and then with a uh, prosecutor worthy. I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even pretend to be one. I was just so happy to get the news that the man is out. But but just for the for the record, Whitmer's office did not commute anything, did not do anything. From my understanding, that is a no. They didn't commute it. Um, I don't know what type of release it was. I was sitting in my office last week when uh, I got the word he was being released. Uh, again, I don't know how. I'm just glad he did uh, because I thought he was wrongfully convicted for one. And even let's, let's say for the, the sake of argument, I'm totally wrong. My guts and training and everything is totally wrong. 48 years in prison is long enough for a crime. I don't think anybody disagrees with you there, uh, Ellis, at all. Um, let's go back to you, Ray. Um, um, before this crime, you were a four-time Golden Gloves boxing champion. Yes. You loved to box. You were great at it. Yes. Tell me about that. How did that? Who taught you how to box? Well, I was at the... Uh King Solomon Baptist Church was a gym then, but my, I grew up in a, my father was really into boxing and into art. And those are the things that 
that impressed, left a very indelible impression on me. But the boxing thing was, uh, I was finna sign a contract and become pro. And that was one of the things that um, was derailed, you know, and, and, and as far as the art was something I was doing the day that it happened. You know, I was uh, drawing a, uh, a female friend of mine. Um, but the art has been something that helped sustain me through this whole uh, struggle. Did you create art throughout your 48 years in prison? Yes. How, where is all this art? Well, I want to see a, some of it. I brought a book somewhere. All right. Uh, Before we leave, I want to see some of yeah, it. I want to see some yeah, pictures. Yeah, I want to yeah. show our listen, show our viewers um, the some of this artwork. Um, and, and and I also have a note here that you were you were looking to turn pro. You were trying to be a pro boxer. Is that yes, true? Yes. Yes, I was. I was. And um, um, can't recall his name, but we had a, a sponsor that was a, a lawyer for the NFL. And uh, a team called um, the Detroit Dukes was a boxing team. It was a league, like sort of like the basketball league, which I thought was a pretty good thing. Each city, state had a different team, and uh, we'd go around and fight. So that was something that that was that was good. Um, so I'd like to reference something back to to, to if I can. Uh, about Charlie, what, what, what Bill said about Charlie. Uh, his name was mentioned actually two days after the crime. Charlie Matthews, yeah, the one that uh, signed the affidavit, the one that Bill mentioned that he had interviewed, that, that it sounds like everybody in your camp and his camp believes that he was the actual trigger person right, right. Uh, who, 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 who killed... Um, Reuben Bryant. Reuben Bryant. And and two days after the murder, his, you heard his, the name? His name was given to the police, unknown to me. Oh. Uh, in fact, this is one of the things that played a role in the conviction being over, set aside. By our witness, was given to uh, Sergeant Chester Kaczynski, I think his name. And he didn't do anything about it. Even though as Bill pointed out, there were two men, two men, not one. Uh, not only was he given a name, he was given a general area where this individual lived. And nine days after the murder, he committed another robbery using the same method. But this time he used a, 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 a pellet gun. But the police didn't investigate it, didn't look at it, didn't, go, uh, didn't do anything about it. And not only that, he had a, a mustache, just like mine's, uh, there were some similarities in our nose. His nose was wider, but it's a flaring nose uh, that I told later that one of the witnesses pointed out that there was his nose. Um, that's called a Brady violation. Mm -hmm. The police must disclose any evidence that's exculpatory to the defendant. Even if it goes against the defendant, they're still supposed to disclose it. They didn't. You know, and it's kind of uh, ironic that it's called newly discovered evidence. It's not new at all. I mean, they knew about it all along. It was newly discovered for me, uh, so they didn't act upon that. And uh, when I were able to talk to uh, Mr. Matthews, he, like you, he was concerned about evidence. 
What else did they have? Did they, uh, according to him, during the struggle, the man picked up a table and he put his hand on the table to try to avoid being, you know, according to him, the gun, he almost shot himself. So there's a strong likelihood that there were fingerprints on the table. And they definitely didn't belong to me because I wasn't there. And he kept asking about that. But what about the table? What about this? And what about that? So they told me they didn't, they didn't get anything. You know, so he wanted to know that before he signed an affidavit. You know, because I guess he wanted a, you know, a place, a little opening that he might be able to escape from. And also he pointed out that when they uh, entered the building, they told everyone to get on the floor. And it was, and that's important because when I went to prison, I kept trying to replay this scenario that, that the identification took place from people laying on the floor as opposed to looking straight ahead. Mm. And what I noticed, I took a mirror and looked at myself I noticed the nose that looked a lot like Mr. Matthews's nose. Um, and uh, I took into account, too, that it was, maybe they were high. Maybe it was, you know, it was a drug house. Maybe it was on drugs or whatever. But in identification, one of the questions is, how long does the victim have to view the assailant? And that's important. And according to Charlie, not long. They got on that floor, and they got on the floor quickly. Um, in reference to Tyrone, the taller guy, they did question him. They asked him, did he know me? See, I know Ray. When did, did, were you involved in the murder of Ruben Bryant? said, no. And they let him go. A murder investigation. They asked more questions. Well, jaywalking infraction. Then did he do it? What did he think he was going to say? I know him, I didn't have anything to do with it, and they let him go. And he was never get put in the lineup. So Ray, Ray's bringing up you know, a lot of the evidence, or the lack of evidence that he was told about. Do you want to add any color to this? About, I mean, I think what he was saying was the witnesses were on the floor trying to look up at the, at the suspects. I mean, where did all this come from, all this information? Well, th this was a nighttime event in February. All right, so nobody knows or can essentially detail how much light was in this apartment where, what, eight, six people were? All right, one, one male, two children, uh, three female, uh, I guess, adults slash teenagers. Well, once again, I've been fortunate enough to be face-to-face -face with the one witness who continues to insist that Ray Gray was the person who, who did this crime. Well, the fact of the matter is she agrees. Yes, we were on the floor. And yes, only for a second or two did I get to see this guy walking out. And yes, she insists, I know it's Ray Gray. I tried to lay out for her all of what has happened since that event. Since, as a teenager, she saw Ray. And no, no, it was Ray. Okay, so how do you know? And well, I identified him. And yes, the eyes and nose. And, this. and I tried to explain to her. 60% uh, of wrongful convictions come from mistaken identity. And you were in the ultimate position to make a mistake as a teenager, high on whatever you were consuming before this thing took place. Uh, somebody standing with you with a gun saying, oh, yeah, well, maybe we'll kill the children if, if you don't cooperate. I'm sorry, just how much pressure tended 
teenage female be under? And then she looks up and she sees this big mustache and maybe a flaring nose, and she decides that it's Ray Gray. You know, Ray's whole release is based upon way different facts that you and I have ever have ever talked about. I think um, you know that you're the tenth person that we've interviewed on open mic who has. You know, the, well, we, we've been always using the word, you know, wrongfully convicted, exonerated, right? Those are the words that we use. So, you know, there's Kenny Winanko's out here. He came to see you and greet you today. Yeah, yeah, he says that. you guys were together. Yeah, when you Ryan. Were in, uh, Ryan. Ryan Correctional. Yeah. But um, we've never actually interviewed someone who has maintained their innocence by all accounts of the people that I look to for advice and trust in, in these matters. Say you're innocent. Um, but yet, uh, Kim Worthy, um, has specifically said that, that this is, a, is not an exoneration. What happened for our listeners and our viewers who have not followed the news and, and Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that they vacated your first degree murder conviction and asked you to plead guilty to a second-degree murder conviction, which you did not do. You pled no contest to a second-degree murder conviction, which they accepted, the court accepted, the prosecutor accepted, which gave you a lesser sentence. You got time served, and they let you out of prison. Is that basically what happened, Bill? Yes, and uh, he, he should explain how the negotiation came about because what this is, as far as I'm concerned, the, the advocates take on this, is that they literally put a noose around the man's neck and then walked him out and took the noose off. I mean, this is horrific to make somebody admit to something that for his entire lifetime he has insisted he did not do. Now he's uh, accepted this plea that says he did. Well, let's get into that. So, So you pled no contest, which is not an admission of guilt. It's treated as an admission of guilt, it's kind of like a loophole, right? You, it, it's my impression of it. it. It was mostly for civil purposes. So, if uh, if uh, somebody's drinking and driving, and they get into a car accident, they allow that person sometimes to plead no contest. It acts as a conviction, as an admission of guilt, but you can't use it in a civil court of law. In this scenario. Um, your lawyers negotiated it, so you didn't have to basically admit to, to something you didn't do. However, it does act as an admission of guilt, um, but you didn't have to get up there and say that you did anything wrong because you're maintaining that you didn't do anything wrong. So, Ray, um, I set the stage, but tell me how, what, you know, when did you first start talking to your lawyers about that this was a possibility um, is it weeks? Is it months? Is it days? And, and t- take us through the whole uh, negotiation process. Well, yeah, I, I'd say maybe a month, a month and a half. Um, it was a matter of what to settle on. Uh, I wasn't initially open to any of it. Uh, and I felt that the argument that they put forth was excellent and and winnable um, however uh, they pointed out that it could take two or three years you know that if I won then they would appeal it and so forth and it would be a back and forth so it's like uh, uh, we can get you out and 
within two weeks, three weeks, as opposed to three years, you know. So it's a, it's a, it was a question of, do you want to go now or do you want to go three years from now? And, you know, that wasn't a difficult uh, uh, answer. However, we struggled so long for this, you know. And so uh, the one issue that was of, of importance was that there was a part where I can appeal. That made it a bad situation, a horrible situation. Took a little of the horror off. Because um, the, go ahead. ahead. I just wanted to, I wanted to stop on that point for one second. The fact that you pled no contest to second degree murder, you're saying that you can appeal that? Right. Right. Okay. That it still has an appeal. But, you know, the, this thing is full of uh, contradictions. And one of those is that they're saying that even they don't think that I com committed this murder but that I had something to do with it. Well, that's not what I did 48 years for. You know, something to do with it. I did it these 48 years for murdering someone. Who's telling you this? The prosecutors are telling right, you lawyers right. that they the, still think the, you had something to do with it. Right, but 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 not at the actual murder uh, because there's, there's evidence that, that's pointing away from me and there's evidence that collaborates one another. Uh, for example, uh, Charlie admitted that he was there. The judge, admit, the Judge Rabbits, said if Charlie was there, then I couldn't have been. If Charlie is there, not if Charlie committed the murder, if he's there, eating the tuna fish sandwich, if he's there, I couldn't have been because there were two people. Well, he said he was there. But not only did he say he was there, unknown to me, two days after the murder, an eyewitness said he was there. And in reference to uh, one another witness was said that uh, the murder that Mr. Gray favors the the shooter. He, however, Mr. Gray's hair looks different, and the man looked it rougher. So that's referencing some something else. I mean, I'll, I like to use the scenario of a donkey favoring a, a zebra. A zebra favors a horse. They favor one another, but they are two distinct animals, things. Mm -hmm. Anything that favors anything is more than one. And but she said he favors him, but the, the other guy looked it rougher. The judge in the act, did you mean Mr. Gray looked it rougher because of the activity that he was doing? You know, and uh, that shouldn't have been allowed. The, the, she was, she should have been allowed to give her own answer without his help, mm -hmm. because he introduced, still introduced me. Oh yeah, yeah, he looked the rougher, you know. And no, she, she was uncertain uh, that it was me, and so they didn't allow her to even come to the lineup, mm -hmm. you know. So, so you you mentioned. You were waiting in prison for 48 years, and, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What were you waiting for? Uh, the truth. The finally come out. Uh, and I realized that a lot of mistaken identity cases are helped along the way by people in authorities with nefarious uh, Intentions that that it appeared to me 
that there wasn't that I remember reading something that definitely Bailey said that that uh that the law has nothing to do with truth or dishonesty. It has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It has something more to do with it's sort of like a sport, you know. But it's sort of like a sport. I'm madness with a touch of corruption. That they want to win, and they want to win by any means necessary. And so uh, there were people I feel that know that I didn't commit this crime, but they wanted to win. And so uh, in wanting to do that, a lot of times eyewitnesses are unaware that there are things subliminal or whatever that helped guide them to make this mistake. And I always felt that if if the witness could be shown that it wasn't totally their fault because they don't want to feel guilt. People don't want to feel guilt. Like, I, I sent a person to prison for something he didn't do all these years. And so to take some of the guilt away and place it on the authorities, like with the mustache, uh, the... Uh, not pursuing the other person, even though they had another name, Charlie. That's the same name that came up, Charlie. Mm-hmm. You know, everything pointed to Charlie. Even in the polygraph examination, it pointed to Charlie. Um, and she didn't want to have none of that. She didn't, you know, she could look at the pictures. She had already seen a picture of me, and this is it. And she seen me in court. And so. so you think that the, the one witness was the holdup? Do you think that because right. of Marie Hardy, that, that from what I read, it seemed like the prosecutors, you know, were stuck, that they, they had this one witness. Do you feel like she was the major holdup? Right. And it, it's, it's her voice versus all this other evidence that points away from me, uh, that she would have that much uh, bearing or influence. Or power. Power. I was exactly. thinking... So you mentioned that you sat, you, you were waiting in prison for 48 years for the truth to come out. You're now out for about a week. Do you feel that the truth came out? Partially. Partially. Not totally. Um, you know, his brother, the deceased's brother, felt that I did enough time. And it didn't weigh on him whether I did it or not. He just felt that, you know, that's enough time for something like that. So, no, you know, I'm not, I have mixed feelings. Well, Mar- Mar- Marvin Bryant, the, the former Wayne County Sheriff, actually th- thought that you were the wrong man. I read a quote that he said that he was the wrong man. Did anybody else read that, Bill? Well, I was there for that interview. You, um, Didn't he say it's, that? It's I'm not sure that he went that far, but then, too, there was another reporter involved in his discussions over the phone, so he, he just may have said that. But I'll tell you this. We did present a mountain of evidence to Mr. Bryant that Ray Gray was not the man who did this robbery and killed, his, killed, killed Reuben. So you waited. You've never admitted any involvement. You've maintained steadfast for 48 years that you had nothing to do with this. And... Tell me about the decision you had to make to plead no contest to get, but you knew you were getting out within days of, of just saying those words. How agonizing was that decision or how easy was that decision? It was, uh, 
like having a cake, and you put a lot of salt on it, a hot sauce or something that definitely is not supposed to be on the cake. So it's sweet too, but it, it's it's a bitter taste as well. But because of the circumstances, you know, uh, the medical situations, uh, I was in a prison that had the highest COVID rate in the country, 99% positive. Um, so there was factors that I had to wait that, okay, I, I, you know, I felt like a fighter. I, sometimes I put these things in boxing scenarios. I felt like a fighter that it, it went, you know, 20 rounds. You still want to fight, but it's handless. So let's just throw in the towel and we can fight another day. You know, you still want to fight, you know, but you're just battered and beaten. And so uh, that was there. Um, but getting out has been a beautiful thing, you know, despite how it happened. You know, those are psychological things that I have to wrestle with. Um, and I have to start from the day that I, I step out of there. If you would have, if you would have lied 10, 20 years ago and told the parole board or somebody that you were involved would do you think you would have gotten out sooner yes in fact uh i was offered a plea of 10 to 20 and and if, if you add that that's 30 years you know uh but i refused it you know and i often point out to them that my position of innocence has never been helpful you know, it's a matter of principles. And I realize that a lot of people would have said, man, that's, you're crazy for holding on to that. You know, go on and say it and get out. And, and you know, I thought of that, but it's just it was difficult to, to, to say. I, another thing that, that, that bothered me, uh, not just the sentence, but just the thought of having taken someone's life for drugs or money would be difficult to me to live with, to just take someone's life like that. I lost, the, my brother lost his life to a drug addict. Mm. For, and and I, I was still mourning that. That happened about a month before this happened. So that would, would have bothered me to uh, have done something like that, not just the sentence, but to know that I've taken someone's life. Uh, so, you You could be one of the most principled and patient people. Did you think this day was going to come? Uh, it's interesting you asked that question. I was telling my wife that I had doubts even when I was told that they were trying to put something in the, in the mix and stuff. I still felt that something was going to happen. That it, that it wasn't going to happen. Um, it was too good to be true. Uh, and I know those are cliches, but they are they have been real for me. Uh, things that you think should go right, but they don't. Uh, because I knew that despite what Kim Worthy said or Valerie Newman or Gabby, that the final decision was the judge. And the judge had... Uh, the final say. So all she had to say was no. But 
I think the difference this time was the media, people like Bill, uh, people like Ellis, people like Channel 7 and 2 and 4, you know, uh, the truth is the light and the media is the light, you know. Uh, so I think that was the difference. Um, you know, I don't think anybody could hear your story and listen to you tell the story and listen to your friends, Bill and Allison and, and others that wouldn't believe you. I, 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 you are very believable. You come across as very genuine and I'm not an expert in that, but you know, you've heard from experts, you passed a polygraph all these years, all those years ago. It's infuriating. And the fact that you come out such, um, so compassionate and and happy to be with your wife and happy to be alive and and your anger is not spinning off i'm not sensing that i'm just feeling a beautiful happy grateful oh, yeah. person yeah and i love that smile <laughs> yes i am happy to be with my baby and to be with my supporters and i look at all of them as family as brothers and sisters and the fact that they are of different nationalities but one commonality, and that has always been a saving grace for me, um, that I never wanted to sacrifice my humanity, uh, despite um, possibly never getting out of prison. Um, there were things I felt I could still do that would be productive, and the things that held me together in there will hold me together out here. So, so. Is there a fight still left in this scenario? Like, what are the what are your what is your team telling you the next steps are? Well, I, that's another thing I had to consider was that I can fight better here than there. Uh, I fought to get out of there. Uh, there are some things that we're uh, mulling over uh, that we haven't. Uh, quite decided on, but one thing we have decided on is that the struggle continues. Um, that uh, to pursue the truth, not partially, you know, um, a compromise. You know, some things are uncompromisable that you just have to pursue. So that I would feel better about that. One bitter pill is that because the conviction integrity unit didn't help you get an exoneration. You are not eligible for Michigan's victim compensation, which is $50,000 a year, which would be two and a half million dollars. Um, did that come up in any of your decisions or is that just something that you had to deal with and you didn't care enough about that? Well, freedom is priceless. You know, people have, laid their life down for it, you know? So looking at it like that, freedom was number one. Uh, it's interesting that you say that in relation to the financial interest, because I even thought of that, that maybe they don't want to let me go because, you know, they, they don't want to give me the money, you know? And there are people who weigh things like that, you know? Okay, not about the guy, what about the money that the city would lose or the state or whoever, wherever this money is coming from, you know? And that's a cruel 
way of looking at it. We know this guy's innocent, but say two million dollars, you know, uh, we already paid out a you know a large sum for an individual who just did about forty five years, forty six years, you know. So now here we come with this guy, you know. Uh, so, so it's never been my impression that. I mean, I don't think that money comes out of Wayne County's budget. I'm actually not sure exactly what budget it comes out of, but I, you know, I've never, I've never heard that. Uh, you know, we we we've had good, some episodes that that the conviction integrity unit in, in Wayne County is is an amazing unit that has freed several people. Um, I'd be curious on Bill's take on this one. Um, you know. I'm sure you're frustrated about this part, uh, but give us give us your take on if you think that had anything to do with uh, any of these decisions. I believe that this was orchestrated, that the prosecutor's office went to the judge to ask for an unlimited extension for their investigation, which would have put more pressure on Ray to essentially accept whatever was thrown at him. Um, no, I'm, I'm not happy about this at all, but I'm, 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 I'm learning from Ray Gray. Um, I need to stop grinding my teeth and pounding the table and help him enjoy his freedom while we consider what next steps to take to find true justice for Ray Gray. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with their approach to this, but by the time it's over, um, we... Uh, we need to enjoy with him uh, every day, every hour, every minute. And I have and, no doubt that he's going to be able to do that because I can, I can feel the love and feel the energy between, the, between Barbara and, and, and Ray here. Um, but, you know, Bill, you and I have done episodes um, on the Conviction Integrity Unit in Wayne County. They've done some good work. They've let out people who should not have been in prison. In this particular case, in Ray's case, um, why do you think it is that they would not exonerate him? Um, I, I think, in a lot of ways, I, I was ahead of them. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the, the very person that was available to them, uh, Barbara Jean Hill, that they went to and said, okay, can you tell us something new? I'm sorry, that wasn't up to Barbara Jean Hill. What she could have done that they did not do was to ask her, okay, um, do you by chance know who did this? And can you maybe look at these pictures and come up with an identity? That's all I did. It was basic police work. I, I showed them a, a nine-banger uh, set of pictures for both individuals. She instantly picked Charlie Matthews and Tyrone Pugh out. I'm sorry. That could have, should have been enough for them to take positive steps towards getting Ray the same consideration that they gave for other clients. Now, among the two dozen people that the Wayne County Conviction Integrity Unit has managed to get out, and there may be more by now, listen, th those are all wonderful stories. But what I saw in many of them, like in the Richard Phillips case, they had live people standing up uh, in front of some authority saying, well, I did it, and that guy didn't. Okay, that, that, that's a relatively straight line, very simple thing. This one was not simple. It took some thought. It took some genuine consideration of what had already been done. They didn't bother to call Ellis <coughs> Stafford to even have a conversation with him that I know of. 
Okay, so, and I'm sorry, th- th- this gentleman is a part of the system. He has spent decades doing exemplary work and understanding what investigations are all about. He could have told them, he could have told them, okay, th- these are the lines you really should walk with this particular case. And they could be where all those other cases are with an exoneration. But because Kim Worthy let Charlie Matthews die and never talk to him, they, the Detroit police let Charlie Matthews die. I mean, and I'm sorry, that, and that's what infuriates me because this is way back in 2009 that I was face-to-face with the Detroit Police Department and a whole c- committee talking about his innocence. We were there with the entire Canadian team spelling it out. I went personally to Kim Worthy and said, Kim, can't you at least talk to the guy? And she says, who? Well, <laughs> who is the guy who actually did the crime? He's here. You may not be able to twist his arm, but please talk to the man at least. Never happened. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not a happy camper because I've been the guy who essentially was doing their work, and they decided to do whatever else and never stepped up for Ray Gray. Of course, let me lean in a little bit. Yep. Uh, he... Uh, Hit that right on the head because a lot of the evidence that's uh, things that were in the motion, the 6500 motion, was brought up by Barb and Bill years ago. You know, so uh, it wasn't until it was put into a legal document form that they had to address it because the judge was involved. Uh, The and everything that we've got, we had to fight hard for, even the fingerprint. You know, that's something that you would think the police would do anyway. Take fingerprints, match them against some somebody. They didn't do that. You know, uh, they knew about Charlie. They didn't do that. Uh, so uh, uh, the information that eventually got me some relief was totally ignored before. Um, Barbara Hill would have been the best eyewitness. Um, and for them to hang their hat on just this one lady who steadfast, uh, despite evidence, to the contrary, is uh, a bit thin. Um, nowadays, with, that's why, one reason why I'm so fascinated by a cell phone. Is that everybody got a camera? It's hard to be a criminal nowadays. You know, cameras everywhere. Um, I would have been able to document by the telephone exactly where I was at that time. Um, That's an interesting point. And like I said, uh, it's bittersweet. So Ray, it seems like you had a lot of amazing supporters, um, but feels like Bill Proctor did a lot for you when you were in prison. Is, is, have you been able to fully connect with Bill since you've been out? Yes. You yes. have been? Oh, yes, yes. He, what do you want to say publicly about what this man did for you? Uh, he was one of the, my biggest supporters. He helped shed light on this situation. Um, He's been extremely aggressive um, 
there's some people that feel that he's too confrontational. I don't feel that way. Um, there were those who opposed some of his tactics. I don't um, because it bore fruit. Me standing here and sitting here talking to you is a result of a lot of the efforts that he put forth and a lot of the people that were brought on board was because of his efforts. Uh, and my wife, of course, who reached out to him. And uh, even though he was reluctant at first, uh, he, he came on board, made all the difference. So I look at him not only as an investigator, but as a friend and as a brother uh, in the truest sense of the word. It's beautiful. He's been a godsend. So you've been home a week. Tell me what tell me what the future looks like for you. Uh it looks good. It looks good. There's a lot of things that I had wanted to do, uh, I'm able to do now. Um my art again is extremely important to me. My wife definitely is important to me. So uh, I treasure every moment with her. Um, I don't take anything for granted. Um, there's the beauty in some of the simplest of things um, that people sometimes tend to take for granted. You know, and it can all be taken away by someone saying, you look like someone. Uh, nowadays, Oh, yeah, I know I wanted to bring that up. I know identity. something. The, the irony of ironies. Um, I'm in a newspaper, and they've shown me being released. But in the bottom, there's a picture that purports to be me from 1973. It's not me. You've got to be this, kidding me. i never seen this guy before in my life. <laughs> Come he on. He like Coolio. <laughs> So I'm saying, even y'all gonna mistake me again? In 2021, you know? they did it to you yeah. again. So whoever this guy is could commit a crime, and they'll get me for it. Oh my goodness! Is this true, Bill? Tell me what happened. On the front page of Wednesday's Detroit News, with this wonderful color picture of the reunion between Barb, Ray, his sister, and one other relative, and they have all the warmth. Right below it is this sepia-colored <laughs> picture of a guy with curly hair that looks absolutely nothing like Ray Gray, purporting to be a mugshot from the old days. It is, it, it, it's and just light mad, it's madness. Yes. <laughs> a yes. real highly yellow individual. How did that happen? <laughs> I can see if they said it was Tyrone. They said it's me. So, so, uh, and I, you know, I wonder if that was that intentional as some kind of cruel joke no, or no, what? Just, yeah, well, we're going to try to find that picture unless they've edited it out of their stuff, and maybe we'll try to put this on for our viewers. It's still there. Yeah, I, I, have it it in the, I have it in the car. I'll, oh I'll my bring God, it up so that is yeah. that the irony of all ironies. Yeah, I mean that is. And when nuts. I seen the picture, I'm like, "Who is this guy? That's some other kid?" I didn't think I didn't connect it to me, but it wasn't me. I said, well, this guy, who is this? Then I said, this is a photograph of Ray Gray from 1973, 72, whatever. And uh, again, it's not me. And, and, and another thing before, before we close out. When I got arrested, they arrested my sister's boyfriend. I, as I was approaching the house, I seen the police coming out with someone. And 
I'm like, wow, what's going on at, at the house? And uh, they had the wrong guy. They had, had him in handcuffs. They looked at the mugs out there and looked at him, looked at me, and I said, what's going on? I said, oh, we got the wrong guy. They put the handcuffs off him, put the handcuffs on me, and now for this thing to come full circle to this newspaper article. So it's just a, it's an amazing journey. I, I don't even know what to say to that, about that one. Um, I loved the part. I love that you were an artist, that you that the art helped you through your 48 tough years and that you're still creating art. I saw a quote that you wanted to go buy some more art supplies. Mm. Um, I would love it. I would love to see your art. I would love to see what you create um, from from my employees here at the Mike Morse Law Firm at the Mike Morse Foundation, we are we are making a, a, a donation to your art supplies. I'm going to give this to your wife oh, to wow. uh, uh, to um, go out and buy a whole bunch of art supplies, a whole oh, bunch of canvases, and and I oh, hope wow. that I hope that you will um, come back and show me some of this artwork. And if there's something, I, will do I mean, that. I I, I, I am I love art, and I I, I love I how you guys met. And I love, um, I didn't know that part of the story that you, that you were his art teacher or at least art muse in the prison system. It's just, it's so beautiful. We have the book full of pictures of Ray's painting and a few recent uh, canvases, small ones that he's done for one reason or another. And before we leave, you can take a look at it. Are they here in with, the office? Yeah. Yeah. Could somebody grab it? So this is so, so some of this art is stuff is art that you created in prison yeah. and that they let you take. You're yeah, they to... wanted a cut of anything he sold, but they never Who spent... did? The prison system? The, yeah. Wanted a cut of what he sold. <laughs> that is rich. <laughs> uh, um, this is beautiful. Wow. Rocky, can you get some of this? Yep. Black Lives Matters. Was this uh, recent? Yes, yes. I assume. It's not finished. I got to finish. Soldier coming home. So. And that was the one I was going to initially do with the person looking at the world. I did that on the prison wall. But I wanted really, to be. Really beautiful. I wanted to be vague because I didn't. I didn't believe until I actually got there. These are old family photos. Yes. Wow. What is? Tell me what's that about? Uh, that was. Just, I was impressed by that Flint situation, the water situation, and the pollution. Uh, fish with gas man. That was done. That and the next picture were done for a man for a, in, a book cover to illustrate his book. It's been published. It's called the Jewish Rabbi. This is the Jewish Rabbi. Yeah. Really, you're really good. Thank you. Really good. The detail is amazing. Well, I hope you keep this up. That that's the three wise women. Who says really that three wise men went to see Jesus? Could have been women. This is really. Wow, the faces are so 
real and alive. The, the, for a book, the way that uh, we're locking up the youth. What medium are you using? Acrylics and sometimes pastel. This is a little bit ominous. Yeah. Yeah, if Michigan had capital punishment, we wouldn't be here today. I, I sense an art exhibition coming up in your future. I hope there so. There are so many pieces here. Please include me in helping or planning or promoting anything I can do. I would I would be honored to uh, help with. Um, this uh, is sure, really I appreciate the podcast. Uh, well, we're, we're, we we appreciate you coming on. This has been. Um, I was talking to my team. We've done 105, 106, 107. This is probably the most meaningful, the most important. Um, one we've done and I really thank you for being vulnerable and opening up and coming here so quickly after being released it means the world to me and I do think it helps by sharing the stories because we've been sharing so many stories and I think that it makes people look at things differently if they're if it could be a judge it could be a witness it could be a juror who's going to be hearing a, a future case that knowing that just because somebody says something 60 over 60 percent of ids are wrong exactly. right and and and, yeah. and and on and on there's so many lessons but um your story is amazing um i love that you guys are together and i wish you guys the best best lives together and and just like you said appreciate every single day oh, as i, I know do. you are you're teaching me that i'm not teaching I you that i i, I it is um like bill said that you're 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 teaching you are quite a teacher thank and you. just thank you from the bottom of my heart well, i appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak thank you very much it's kind of overwhelming but it's beautifully overwhelming you know, all right so. well thank you for the check too it's <laughs> my yeah, pleasure well, i i want to see what you thank guys create so please we'll keep in touch well. with me we'll do that all right so we're going to end it here and i'll let you guys go enjoy the rest of your day thank you Wow, that was an, uh, a powerful, powerful interview. I'm still trying to figure out what we just talked about here on Open Mic with Ray Gray and his wife, Barbara. What a beautiful love story that is of patience and perseverance and, and so many things that I'm still sorting through my head. If you know somebody who should hear this po podcast, please send it to them. Comment, like, subscribe to Open Mic. We're going to keep developing and bringing to you some of the best stories here in Detroit and across the country. We appreciate you being with us. We appreciate you being a subscriber. And thanks for listening to Open Mic.